first thank you so much for coming through again because this week well do i have a guest for you so as mentioned last week a piece of the sustainability puzzle that is sometimes overlooked is the social piece to this puzzle so it's definitely something that i want to dive into a bit more and it's actually an area that i'm not even most knowledgeable about so I think it's a really good opportunity for us to learn together. So on episode 27 we had on MP from Ungarbage magazine and we were talking all about the importance of representation and diversity and then last week on episode 28 we had a fab time talking to Jessica Evans who is a fashion model and the founder of Nawaj label where we discussed all things fashion standards, beauty ideals and what inclusion should look like within a fashion business. So yeah, really great conversations for you guys to check out if you haven't already done so. But yeah, this week is another special connection and I'm so excited for you guys to meet Dusty, who is the founder of a Canadian-based streetwear brand called Mobilize. And this conversation really helped open up my eyes to a totally different and unique walk of life. Through Mobilize, Dusty aims to bring the ever-needed representation of Indigenous people within fashion whilst empowering, educating and helping others find their identity too. I learned a ton from Dusty from the little bits of history and the richness in culture of Indigenous people and what really inspired me was this Indigenous way of living just this incredibly mindful approach that is so innate within the indigenous community and in terms of how resources are used and how it's respected you know like not only just the resources but the food and how that's honored I just really loved listening about this balance and harmonic way of viewing things which was super refreshing to hear um, and discover more from Dusty so yeah I know you guys will no doubt really vibe with Dusty but a quick one just before we do dive in definitely hit that follow button on whichever streaming platform that you're listening to right now to stay up to date with our weekly podcast episodes that come out every Monday at 6am London time and now without further ado let's welcome Dusty to the AO family Hey Dusty, welcome to the Anima Animas podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for having me. How's it going? How's life over there, over across the pond? (laughs) (laughs) It's going good. Our snow is starting to slowly melt away, Mm. um, getting back to some some more sunlight. So that's always good for everybody's mental health, for sure, to have more sun again. But yeah, things are going good. Um, it's a lot of new new energy in the air. You can really feel it. Amazing. So we always start off with a traditional game 
on our show and it's called AA Assumptions. And that's when I ask you three assumptions or mm. like three statements rather, and you can reply you if you think it's true or false and why. So are you ready? I'm ready, yeah. Cool. So the first one is, Indigenous people have ample reserve land. So that's uh, for sure false, like 100% false. Um, reserve land is still Indigenous-owned land. Um, so that part is very cool. The treaties are supposed to be nation-to-nation relationships, um, which have not been upheld to that extent. Uh, and much of the reserve land is really disconnected from urban spaces. So a lot of it was intentionally displacing Indigenous people to different parts of Canada. Um, my nation specifically, we come from we come from one of the urban centers um, and like anywhere else in the world, most of those are by the waterways and indigenous mm-hmm. people were very similar to this lived by the water. The Papa's Chase people, that's the nation that I'm from, were dispersed to three different reserves. So families were just completely broken up. Um, and a lot of that was through the residential schooling system, but it was just this way to disconnect indigenous people from the homeland, from the resources, um, with the whole intention being assimilation of Indigenous people, of absorbing them into this quote-unquote Canadian society. Um, mm. So the reserve land is, is quite, um, quite small. It's like little specks. Um, and this was due to Indigenous people not having a sense of ownership of land as well. Um, as, as people... We've never felt like we own the land. We live in relationship Mm -hmm. with the land, in honor with the land. Um, So even in these spaces, um, this location, it it didn't really matter to us because what was around you, um, who you traded with, was a part of like what the value was for where you lived. Um, So that displacement really broke up a lot of those things as well as uh, the loss of food, a lot of the food sources that existed and the traditional way of living for Indigenous people was also abolished in that. Um, So I think, yeah, so it's definitely false. Indigenous people, especially in Canada and uh, in the U.S., in North America specific, um, do not have much land space at all. Mm. So I guess like in comparison to before, would you say, is that? So, yeah, and in comparison to before, as nomadic people, there was a lot of movement. Um, And in living in relationship with the land and with the resources that are around you, there is certain things about the culture, about the ways that we moved that would honor the earth. Um, For instance, you wouldn't stay in a certain landmass for too long um, to start destroying the earth that you were living on. So you'd only stay there for X amount of days or months and then move on to a new area so that that earth could heal itself and so that you weren't just using it up. So that was part of being nomadic people was that movement and traveling around. Um, So a lot of, a lot of that community and it would move with the seasons. There's different seasons that were for different things. Um, And before the colonization of North America, um, indigenous people moved a lot with the bison. The bison was like the main animal in North America um, it's told that before the European contact, there was 
as much bison as there was grass. Um, there was like an over amount of them. So like as far as food source and clothing source, um, that was how uh, indigenous people lived in balance was by these. And um, I think even just the population of the animals before contact is evidence to how that relationship was more balanced. Um, and once the gold rush happened, once the fur trade began to happen, those animals were just killed off in massive numbers for fur um, or for meat mm -hmm. and a lot for the gold trade. Um, in the states was just because those were areas where there was a lot of gold so they would just kill off everything they kill off the people they kill off the land the animals everything that was there so that they could get that gold so a lot of it was like resource extraction um, that ended up costing the indigenous people their way of life their food source um, and a lot of times their homelands as well mm, that's very interesting because the relationship with ownership but then also trying to protect and bite off what other people are trying to take away from mm -hmm. you because if you realistically don't actually quote own it you can't really fight for it in, yeah. in that sense yeah. so that's yeah that's quite a tough one yeah and and even in the the treaties that were signed between indigenous people and the crown a lot of it was like an adoption of from the indigenous people the perspective was an adoption of the two nations that we were becoming cousins and that we would find a way to live together here in unity, in harmony. Um, and the indigenous people had this perspective because a lot of the European settlers that first came here only survived because the indigenous people taught them how to live here, mm -hmm. taught them how to survive. And so it was already going on. There was already a reciprocal relationship. Uh, but once those treaties had been signed and once a lot of the greed came over here, um, a lot of people that first came to North America had criminal history or were escaping stories or uh, families um, that did not honor them. So they came here to build a new life. And a lot of them came with a lot of their own traumas and they brought that here as well. And they brought that, um, the sense of superiority. Um, I think it's like the manifest mm -hmm. destiny, those, those ideologies that came with it um, that indigenous people did not understand. Um, because even as people, we don't even look at ourselves above the animals in those ways. Um, to live in harmony, you need to respect all beings and not, uh, not put yourself above. And those types of thinking is what contributes to, to that greed and to that, that sense of ownership and then being able to purchase. So a lot of what happened between Indigenous people and uh, those that came here was like this clash of value systems that were completely different worlds. Um, and so even in the treaties, even in the signing or that trade that happened, indigenous people were tricked in ways because they didn't understand yeah. what they were talking about. They're like, what do you mean you can own land? Like, what, what does that yeah. mean? Like, yeah. I was literally going to ask as well, because yeah, forgive me, this is going to be a learning and growing hour. So there's probably going to be so many like, obvious questions to you. But for me, I don't I don't know. But like, it in terms of signing that treaty, I'm sure it was such it was so um, uninformed for the indigenous people to actually understand what these like small clauses mm -hmm. will, will entail. Yeah, and, and it's it's deeper than that. Like it was it wasn't accidental. 
And so I think that's important to know as well, is that a lot of what happened, Canada, I think, has about 11 or 12 different treaties. And each of the treaties is a combination of the Indigenous people that were around that territory. A lot of the people were, were forced to sign um, because they were starving. Um, because of that mm. abolishment of the animals um, and the ways of being, living on the land at that point in time was not realistic because there was no food sources that existed to take care of the people the way it used to happen. And this was like in within 50 years that this changed, that all the animals disappeared. Um, there were supposed to be millions and millions of bison that existed on the plains. And here in Canada today, you don't see any bison. Um, they don't, they just don't exist. Um, they're starting to be reintroduced just through some conservation mandates and mm. that type of thing but the the goal of treaties the goal of this relationship from the indigenous people was adoption but from the other side it was uh ownership it was gaining control to the major water sources to the major urban areas that had started to develop there is stuff from world war ii there is different things different caps um really horrible things similar to what happened in the Holocaust that happened in Canada that happened very hidden. Um, and in the treaty signing, most Indigenous people at that point did not speak English. Um, so these treaties were signed in English. And usually the translator um, was a government official. Um, so mm. there is a lot of examples where these treaties were signed and the Indigenous people were orally told that it said something different than it actually said because they couldn't read the mm. treaty themselves. Um, so there was a lot of intentional trickster work that went into creating those to make sure that Canada as a state would have ownership of these lands, of these important resources. Um, and it was very intentional. And I think it's taken to this point in time where Indigenous people have learned the colonial justice system enough now to know mm. um, and know how they manipulated that and to know in which ways that they went against their own rules in those ways and to expose those things and to bring those to light. Um, and it took so many years just due to the, the assimilation and the trauma that existed. The residential schooling system was a schooling system that existed for about 50 years in Canada. Um, and almost everybody that I know has their grandparents or great-grandparents that were forcibly removed from their family when they were four or five years old and taken to residential schooling system. Um, so if you can just imagine like your child or your sibling just being taken um, and the whole point of that was assimilation. So a lot of this was run by the Catholic and the Christian church here in Canada. And these children were taken to schools. The family wasn't told where the school was. Um, a lot of them were many, many hours away from their home. They were not allowed to speak their own language. They were not allowed to practice their own ceremonies or culture. Um, for Indigenous boys, their hair was cut. Um, there was mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse that went on in these things. Um, if anybody is curious, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that has been developed in Canada, the TRC, um, speaks to this and speaks in numbers and facts. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty heartbreaking to read as an Indigenous person, but just for anybody to read that and just to see 
the scope and to see how deep that is. And what people don't understand is like uh, me personally, that happened to both of my grandparents. Um, so I have seen that trauma in my family with my own parents, um, even in my own life. And it's been this kind of trickle down of trying to heal and get back to being whole and being able to um, speak up to these atrocities and to bring light to them as well. Um, so I think moments like this are very vital, like um, totally cool for you to ask the questions that are important to you um, to learn because mm. you not knowing in a different part of the world is not different than people here in Canada. Um, this is still not taught in schools. Um, this is still a lot of the indigenous people's history is hidden and because it's very dark and it will not make mm. the Canadian or American governments look very good once it comes to light, once it becomes known by people, um, they will understand kind of how these empires were built. I think it's important to, to share and to share perspective on these things, uh, even for myself, because these are, these are histories that I know about, that I can see in my family, um, that I know are real. And, yeah. and even to find this knowledge, um, it took me many years uh, in university, outside university of studying, of just finding this information on my own um, so I could understand the trauma that exists in my family. Um, I, I feel honored in a way to be somebody who is still connected to people that know or carry this knowledge, um, as well as with my work as a fashion designer, being able to now share in more global spaces about this as well, about the experience, even if it's just from my own perspective, but just to enlighten people that the Indigenous history is much more rich than what anyone has mm. seen. Um, it is so beautiful and there's so much in it. It is so holistic. And I think it's, it's finally at a point where Indigenous people and elders are, are opening up and branching out and starting to share this knowledge as well. For a long, long time, it was protected and not shared as a way to make sure that it survived to make sure that it survived this assimilation attempts on it, um, to make sure that I had some older people that could teach me a few things and that I could pass this knowledge to my kids and to the generations, to all kids. And so um, I like to speak kind of very openly about these things and kind of keep it real with people about like how intentional it was, like that it wasn't by accident that people around the world don't know about Indigenous people. Um, it was by design. Yeah. No, um, I don't even know where to comment first. <laughs> I have so many questions. I mean, the first one is, well, actually, you've also answered my second assumption, which was very little was taught mm. about the true history of Canada and indigenous people. But I mean, that was pretty clear. Back to the point where you said um, taking people from out from your community and putting them into what they want mm. you to be and kind of basically re-educating on rewiring the person you actually are would you say like now because your generations after it was also sort of a way to help you understand their system yeah 
you know, like with the whole understanding and the misinformation, you know. So I wouldn't say it's a blessing this side because it's not a blessing at all. But in a sense, like you've it allows you to have then the knowledge to realize, like, wow, this is this is what has actually happened mm-hmm. on their side, and this is where I've come from, and I'm understanding like what my culture is yeah. all about. And sort of now having this power to, yeah, it's like regaining that power because mm-hmm. you have this knowledge to go back to the systems now where where you can, you know, challenge yeah. the current Yeah, system. I think it, um, like the way that I've been taught um, from my elders is, is to speak from a very personal point of view um, about these things. And for, for myself, it was a big journey of, mm. of self-love. It took, it took a long time to be at the place where I loved myself. I embraced myself as an individual. Um, and a lot of that was because of colonization and this disconnect to who I was. I had no clue who my people was, my ceremonies. I did not know much about my own language. Um, I was raised in a very, very strict Christian church, was, which was a trickle down of that residential schooling system. Um, a lot of my kukums, my grandmothers, um, the Catholic church was, became their belief system because of these schooling systems. In these residential schools, these, these kids were not allowed to speak their language. They, if they did, they were beat. Um, there's many stories of just being openly beat. Um, there was kids that... I think in the 40 to 50 years that residential schools existed, there was over 6,000, close to 7,000 children that died. Yeah. Like it's, it's a lot deeper. Like it's, it's, it's almost like the, this system was supposed to just break the indigenous people and it was supposed to break the youngest generation. Um, And what, what, what came with that was, um, as a parent now and kind of looking at that, I have kids that are about that same age and just thinking about how that would feel if that was to happen to my children and not only how that would affect them, but how that would affect the parent. Um, so they broke a few generations of people um, with just this. And it was, it was, it was much of the church um, and this Christian ideology of, of like saviorism of that. We, they, they, they worship the devil. They need to know about the Jesus. Like these types of things uh, was the root of this. And it was introducing them to the colonial society. So getting them in a schooling system where they could be taught to show up nine to five, where they could be turned into robots. Um, I don't think those aspects just happen with indigenous people. I think this is a colonial structure, capitalist structure that is still going on today. Um, like working nine to five and these kinds of things, like you're giving so much energy to this system um, that you're not able to nurture and allow the things that you love to flourish in the same ways. Um, I know I experienced that in my own life, working nine to five and just wanting to do clothing, wanting to be a designer and just like dreaming about it and be like, hopefully one day I can do this so that I can have all my time and energy to build the things for my children that I dream of and that they can dream and see possibilities. Um, It's so dark that only, I think, five years ago, they put anything about residential schools in the schooling text. 
um, they didn't even say that existed for a long, long time um, because it was that, that dark of what's happened to restructure these things and to heal and create opportunity um, for these people to find themselves and to love themselves. Um, it took me, like, I, I think I was probably like in my mid twenties when I would finally say that I loved myself. Um, and it took a long time to get to that place. Mm -hmm. And it was just due to a lot of the traumas. It was also only in my adult life when I finally was connecting back to indigenous ceremony and starting to learn about what specific Nahiel culture is about and and where it comes from and like indigenous people's ways of being are not indigenous they're human um they're just human laws and they're just about mm. humanity and how we take care of each other and how we live in harmony with each other and so it was only once I started to discover this types of knowledge that I was wait like this this makes more sense like this is more rich and this is this is what we need as a society to understand that there is responsibility um, to all of us. The assimilation of Indigenous people is so deep that a lot of our elders, a lot of our Gukums and Muslims, our grandparents, are they're afraid to talk about it. Uh, even in embracing my own culture, growing my hair, certain things, I had pushback from my own family because they're still carrying so much trauma. Of like, And I think there's a lot of fear in it because they know what comes with looking indigenous, what comes with as a man having long hair, um, the pushback that you get because they don't understand the teachings that are behind it. And it's happened in my life. Like I, I get misgendered all the time. People just think I'm a female all the time because I have long hair. They don't understand why I grow my hair long. They don't understand different things about it because it's never been taught to them. And, and so I think it's, it's a lot of learning. Um, there's a lot of work still to be done uh, obviously but i think it also it's going to take a, a bunch of people and it's going to take openness and it's going to take some healing um, with mobilize i find that a lot of my work is infiltration work it's like sneaking into spaces and then just slapping them with the knowledge because you know they don't want to hear anyways um, so usually that's what i'll do is like even in fashion shows um, what i found in the fashion world is that there is not much diversity in the fashion world when it comes to indigenous people uh, that like the shows that I've been a part of, or the models that I have in my shows are the only indigenous people that are in those shows. I've done some of the biggest shows in Canada and every single time, the only indigenous models are the ones walking in my show. And so it's, it's this little form of infiltration of getting into these spaces and then showing them be like, yo, have you met indigenous models? Like, have you, I have one model that works with me. Um, who is a two-spirit person and who sometimes walks as a female and sometimes walks as a male and in certain shows has done both. Um, and this person is like six foot nine. So it's like the tallest female you've ever met. And but our culture, like we have, we're not just male, female gendered. Um, the gender roles in the culture are much different. Um, it's more about the society and the different roles that you play within and so there is roles for say mothers and different things but the a two-spirit identifying person acknowledges that they have both male and female flowing through them and that they're equal in these ways um, and this certain individual uh, is one of my favorite models just to take into these spaces to just show them 
this diversity of of people. Um, and so in the shows that we do, um, we will bring certain medicines there. Um, I've had models um, paint. Well, my sister did this. She painted her hands red um, to signify MMIW, the murdered missing Indigenous women. Um, it's, it's a very horrible thing that is still going on. Indigenous women, two-spirit people and men, um, but specifically women and two-spirit people just go missing and their families never find out what happened to them. They're, it, it's happening still. It's never investigated. It's never found out of, of, as to why this is happening. So what we do um, with our art is to raise awareness. And so uh, my sister did this at Western Canada Fashion Week, which is one of like Western Canada's biggest shows. Um, and at the end of the runway, she had her hands painted red and she just smeared that across her face and just stood there. And so just little moments like that to let them know mm. that not only are we here, but we haven't forgotten. And I think that's an important piece is to, to make sure that people, for one, know that we're here. Um, a lot of these things that we do, like my sister with the paint, other experiences like that, we don't, we don't ask permission. We don't tell them what we're doing. Because um, what I've learned along this too is a lot of people are, uh, I don't know, they're just soft and they're not going to let you make your statement. Um, and so instead of asking for permission and being shut down, we just do it and we just ask, we just say sorry after if they don't like it. <laughs> so, yeah. no, and so little so things great. like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. Yeah. I feel like that with the fashion industry, I guess, as well, like you could just, have a whole sort of fashion revolution moment you can just do mm. what you want but like convey that message mm -hmm. impactfully i don't think in any yeah. other industry you could really really do that as well yeah yeah it's so true and and it isn't it, it's also an industry that hasn't diversified very much it's still very elitist um it still carries a lot of those uh kind of capitalism structures where <sighs> Yeah. If you don't know the people or if you don't got the connects, you ain't getting in. And what I found with Mobilize is that, that like, as things grow, um, little simple things like got a couple of Vogue features, little things like that would happen. And then they'd invite me in mm. and be like, okay, now we want you to come. And I'm like, yeah, but, but yeah. a couple months ago you said no. <laughs> so it still exists. So it's especially those spaces, mm. um, especially the spaces that aren't diversified or don't know or are trying to tokenize myself or, or the models as a brand, we usually bring the message even stronger and harder for them. Um, if we're in a space with Indigenous people that already understand these things, um, to not trauma re-traumatize people, we don't bring it in the same way. We bring more of that love and that unity. And um, it's it's really like, yeah, I like how you compare it to fashion revolution because it, it, feels, it feels like mini yeah. fashion revolutions in those moments. Like it's constantly going on and um, all the work that I'm doing, like that's my whole dream is to be revolutionary and to shake up this whole thing. And just to make sure that my kids, um, that my little cousins, they don't grow up in a society like this that will treat them the way that I've been treated, the way that I've seen my parents be treated, uh, these kinds of things. And they, they just won't grow up in a place like this, that they're, this community that I live in Canada they're gonna know who who we are um, mm. just as a people and and we're not gonna wait until they are ready 
uh, we just gonna go throw it in their face. And so, <laughs> uh, like, we we got some guerrilla fashion shows planned and some different things where we're just gonna like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, we're just gonna like take up a downtown block and just run a fashion show, like little things like that. We're just like, yo, we here. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, those are the things that I absolutely love. You know, like before when streetwear had the massive hype that it does now, like when it was still low key on the ground and people like, if mm. you know, you know, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you'll get to know, like mm-hmm. it's kind of that. So I feel like that's sort of the vibe that Mobilize is right now. And I feel like it's the calm before the storm as well. Mm. Yeah. And it does feel like that. And that's, that was part of mobilized being a streetwear brand as well was that like the streets the people that those are the ones that know first and that that know it mm-hmm. like you know like where i grew up i grew up in Northside edmonton and it wasn't just indigenous people um i had a lot of somali homies a lot of lebanese homies um it's a lot of like black and brown people that live in the north side of edmonton and so we had diversity there like just with us and so like we got to see even just in our friendships and stuff like the diversity that existed just among our cultures and just how different that was than Canadian society, quote unquote, Canadian society. And I'm just like, like it can be so much more rich and we can do so much better, like taking care of each other, even business wise. There's still these hierarchy structures are still serving a very small percentage of the population. And it's a very, how do you say this? Like, like un, un unflavored yeah unflavored or boring <laughs> like, <laughs> they got no spice so it's just like so that's the thing is just that we know like once they start to see this all people they'll be like yo what is that like what are these people doing over there like even even in our shows like the amount of like especially backstage at fashion shows and stuff like i always have people coming to come see what's going on in my in my little studio or the room that we're all getting ready because there's so much laughter there's so much noise there's energy and that's just because of that's how we are as people like we just keep it real those ways like even me like i'm just a loud goofy person like you'll just catch me dancing anywhere just like whatever (laughs) and that's just because of like that journey of self-love getting to that place where i'm like i do this for me like just on a personal level like i do this because it makes me feel good like i'm not here for you and I'm not here to bug you, mm. but if it does bug you, then that's on you. Like, it's not for me to worry about. And so it's just that place of self-love of just being like, yo, I love this. I love what I do. I like being able to go into these spaces and even to challenge in these ways and to be able to just like, um, you know, bring these moments up and then have them ask about that. Be like, what did that mean? And then to get into it and to get into that story and be like, yo, that wasn't just a cool photo or a cool moment. That was deeper. Like, you want to know the story behind that? You don't want to know why we had to do that? Um, mm. And so those those are the ways of just, like, that infiltration, just getting into these spaces that haven't welcomed us in before um, and then just shaking them up and just letting them know. And and what I've found is, like, for a lot of those, those moments where we don't ask permission and we just go do it, uh, the feedback from the people in attendance or even from the organizers um, I remember the first show I did at Western Canada Fashion Week. They had no clue. They didn't even really want to let me in the show. They didn't really know who I was. Um, and then they they did let me in. And and we rocked their show. Like, we had a standing O. We just had people just cheering and like just <laughs> chanting. And then they were like, 
every other show from that, like they just invited me all the time. They're like, yeah, we want mobilizing <laughs> the show. Like you bring a crowd, you bring energy. I'm like, yeah, like that's it. That's just what we do. Like it's just part of who yeah. we are. And it's part of like who, who we bring to the show and that diversity that we're um, letting people know. Um, even in that same show at Western Canada, uh, where my friend Boyd walked as a female, I had a b-boy who walked on his hands down the entire runway. So he did a handstand oh, wow. on the whole runway. So we just bring some things that I'm just like, yo, the that fashion world black. just needs some splice. Like, it needs some of this in yeah. it. <laughs> I'm like, Jeez. everybody just walk straight. Like, <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my days! No, you. I'm gonna have to like learn some lessons and bring it over here in London. Like what? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, and and those are the, like you know the dreams that I have. Like London Fashion Week is one of the ones that like I would love to be at. Alexander McQueen yeah. was like one of my favorite designers, and I loved what oh my how gosh, London just yeah. like let him do what he did and just bring that. And like those are things that I look up to, and I know the fashion world um, embraces that diversity as well on those stages and that's where i'm just like yo i want to show you guys what the canadian indigenous people are about like i want to bring that you know and i want to show up with 35 of my cousins and just like things like this <laughs> we here like let's go like <laughs> yeah so i always no, I have love like, you so lit. yeah 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 we have yeah. and we have so much fun like and and that's the big thing about it is just like that lightness and like even when we are making strong statements we're still having fun in those mm. moments we're not like we don't take things too seriously um it's a big thing that's a part of our culture like laughter is so big in indigenous culture like if you go into a space and you hear a bunch of loud laughing then there's probably a bunch of indigenous people chilling over there like that's just, <laughs> that's just how how it is and so um it's also just bringing that forward and just letting people know that like yeah we might have been through a lot but like we still carry a lot of joy and a lot of lightness with us everywhere that everywhere we go um, and so it's it's also bringing that, bringing the impact and the teaching, but also bringing the love. Uh, Nehi out people, which is my nation, our first great law, um, our great laws are rooted in our writing system, which is the Cree syllabics. Um, our first great law is to love. And it's simple as that. Um, and it's just like these great laws are just about how we treat one another. Um, and so... That, that is our first law. So like, even when we come with impact, when we come in this way, we're not pointing the finger at anybody in particular, uh, but we're making sure you know, And the, but when we leave that space, we'll still leave with love. Like we're, we're not gonna leave enemy. And so I think it's important for, for people to understand those, those different elements. Um, gifting in our culture is really, really important. Some of the most important lessons that I've been taught um, have come from things that I've seen. And, and one thing is like, like in earrings, um, I, I've been taught like in your clothes and things, like we gift them away a lot. We gift, mm. and it, it usually we gift things that are very special to us. Um, so there's been certain moments where people will really like the earrings that I have. Like, oh, those are my favorite earrings though. Um, but I'll remember kind of what my elders have taught me. and I'll take off those earrings and I'll gift it to that person. Um, and the energy that's reciprocated through that, or just even what will happen in my day, just out of the blue after that, be like, whoa, like that's, that's the honoring um, through the ancestral spiritual world, because they see that. And it's also ways that are rooted in us to kind of disconnect us from that greedy system in those ways, to understand that yeah. these are just physical elements, that this is just temporary. And, and it also teaches me not to hold on to things too long, um, not to 
not to hoard um, with indigenous people living as nomadic people and always moving around. It was important that you didn't have an excess amount of things um, that you just had what you needed and what you loved. And so it's kind of like a minimalist type of type of living. And so I think it's, it's, it's little ways that we're getting to bring it back. Some of my favorite pieces that I've ever created um, I've never sold them and I've always given them away and I've always given them away to people who just had beautiful energy and that I knew would carry that piece with honor and that would love it. Um, and it's really cool to see where those things go. Like I've had a few pieces. I had one experience that was so, so special. Um, and it was two indigenous artists from New Zealand, two Maori artists, um, and we did an exchange. They had, I had two jackets they really loved. Um, and so I told them that I would gift it to them. And in return, they gifted me um, song and some of their own uh, designs and things. Um, that is incredible. And I'll, yeah, and I'll never forget the moment. Um, they asked if they could sing me a song because they're like, in our way, when we gift, oh, wow. we sing a song. So we're in the middle of like, it's one of Edmonton's biggest art conventions in the summer. And so it's like this huge hall and there was probably like a few thousand people in there. And then here's us in the middle of this hall. They're just holding my hands and they're singing a song in Maori to me. And there's all these people are like, what are these guys doing? But like those kinds of moments um, when you're gifting and when you're in trade and you're in balance, like it's just such beauty that comes and like in those moments, like there is not a price tag somebody could have given me for those jackets yeah. after that moment, yeah. if you know what I mean. Like I could have never sold them for any amount of dollars that would have been worth what that moment was worth. Um, and so these are the ways that like, you know, when even in myself, like sometimes I have to make sure that I'm conscious of these things, that I am practicing, that I'm still gifting, that I'm mm-hmm. still doing this, even having a brand and, and being um, conscious of these of the energy that's present. I think it's there's going to be some cool things that I'll be able to do with the brand. There's some cool partnerships that I'm talking about that will be um, pretty monumental here in North America. Uh, I'm talking with a few really big brands that um, might create some like indigenous clothing in their huge brands that have never been done before. Um, so little things like that, where a lot of what I do is for representation. Um, I'm going to be the first indigenous streetwear brand ever in Zoomies, which is North America's biggest streetwear store. Um, and that Ooh, will, yeah, so that'll be watching soon. Major. Yeah. And that, and that piece for me, that was like, that was my dream. And when I started Mobilize, it was all about these youth walking through the doors of spaces and malls like this and being able to see themselves on the shelves, being able to see an ingenuity on the shelves and just being like, yo, there's a, there's there's an indigenous designer here beside Obey mm. and Stussy and all these, and so that <laughs> that was like the whole my whole dream. And so like it's been it's been this little journey for me has been really cool those ways because like a lot mm. of what's happened even with Mobilize has just been straight up manifesting, talking about things and just like even at times just just bullshitting like yeah this is gonna happen this is gonna happen this is gonna happen until even I believed it and I was like you know what I think it could happen. And then a little email pops out out of the blue and I'm like, oh, damn, it's happening. So like little moments like that, because that's even how the Zoomies thing came to be. Um, They found me out of the blue through TikTok. 
Um, wow. And so there's little moments in this, but I had been putting that energy forward for a couple of years and just being like, this is what I'm trying to do. And it was Zoomy specific. So like there was a few other stories that had got a hold Zoomies. of me, but I was like, no, <laughs> yeah. like, I want the big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I want the biggest store and I want to make sure. And that was, that was because of the youth that I worked with before I was a designer. Right. Zoomies was their favorite store. And so this just, this for me just goes back to indigenous youth, the ones that are between 12 and 20 years old, just trying to find their identity, trying to find themselves. Um, and that's, you know, that's what a lot of mobilize is for, is, is for the youth and so that they can know about themselves, they can learn a few stories through it. Uh, and hopefully they can put on a shirt and when they wear that shirt, they mm. can just, you know, their chest can be high and they can walk with a head held high. Just like, you know, this is who we are. Like, this is who I am. Yeah, it's that proudness compared to mm. how they would have felt if they were bullied for actually being like an Indigenous person. I feel like that's mm-hmm. such a, a hardship with young people at, at that, at that mm-hmm. age, you know, there's such a pressure to want to not even want to be yourself because they don't really know mm-hmm. who their real self is, to be fair. So it's like, yeah. if they're different, it's like, but no, mm-hmm. that's so great. What does yeah, so what does like decolonization actually look like in practice within fashion? I think like for me, the only issue that I have with decolonization is, is still centralizing colonization in ways because mm-hmm. it's like so. I, for me, it's more about the resurgence of the ways of being for my people. Um, so like what I talk about bringing my cousins into shows, like I'm not just saying that literally my cousins are in the show like it's my homies it's the people we vibe with it's the energy that we're bringing um and especially when we're in spaces that haven't had much indigenous representation um it's a big responsibility when you're the first ones to break that ground or you're getting into Mm. those spaces first um there's a big responsibility in that and uh we show it just kind of in the ways that we carry ourselves um by having my family and shows or these different types of people and shows I'm showing showing people this is how we value human beings like we don't just look at the beautiful skinny human beings to be in our shows we value all human beings so for me decolonization is just getting back to the roots of community community minded of being in tune with your community and um, with the earth and the animals and the other people around um, so that you're not abolishing things while you're trying to grow. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of to this point um, is that almost everything that exists in Mobilize, every stream of business is localized. And so along with my growth, there has been local businesses who have been growing substantially along like the print shop that I work with, the embroidery people that I work with, um, all the tailors and seamstresses that I work with are just local um, who just like sew in their kitchen. And like, we just go and have a meeting in their kitchen. And a lot of them are like my gokums or my elders and knowledge keepers who uh, like my partner knows this. Like when I go to talk to like one of the tailors I work with, like I'm usually there four or five hours. And that's because we're also talking about Edmonton we're talking about like what's going on in the nonprofits and we're talking about a lot of things we're talking about our community um because like as community leaders we're also rebuilding community in those in those ways and we're, we're showing people that there is different ways and there's ways to like honor all those that are in your community and make sure that people aren't being forgotten 
and that people are taken care of. Um, so for me, the decolonization is getting back to that community, but also honoring um, financially the people's time and energy that are there. So that's something that I've tried to do is make sure that when I'm working with designers or I'm getting a commission or I'm getting certain things done that they're being paid well. And I usually try to pay people like above what everybody else in the fashion world pays them because I'm like, this, this is your time. And like, if you're, if it takes five hours, then you need to be honored for that energy that you put into it. And mm. uh, so, you know, little things that I've had pushback of like, why is that so expensive? Well, cause we don't pay people, right? Yeah. We're not gonna, we're not gonna get it in a cheap way. And uh, we're not going to like cop out and do those things. So like a big thing for me in streetwear was like even finding uh, better made blanks and not just like importing from different parts of the world and things like this, that mm-hmm. um, as a designer, it's it's really hard, especially in Canada. I think there's only two blank creators, manufacturers in Canada. So like almost everything that exists in Canada is just being outsourced and brought in. Mm. Um, and so like, I live in Alberta, which like super oil area and like a lot of the jobs are in the oil industry right. um, and that industry is slowly dying, especially here in Alberta even. Um, and there's these ways of like clothing manufacture or like, you know, localizing more business um, that will create jobs and will create new economy. Um, and so that's kind of the ways that I'm doing it personally, um, as well as not being greedy with what I do. Um, what, one thing that I do to all of the, like, anytime that I talk in schools or I talk with youth is I let them know, like, you can hit me up, like, shoot me a, a DM on Instagram. If you want to know where I get clothes, you want to know who I work with, you want to know anything, hit me up and I'll share it with you. Mm. Um, because like, as a young person, I didn't have that. Like I had to kind of go and find it all myself. Like I didn't have the people to tell me where to look, um, there's no other fashion designers in my family. Well, there is, but there's no like official ones. Um, so like sourcing and different things like that, I didn't have people to look up to. Um, and so one way that I want to decolonize my way of doing business is by sharing. Cause one thing that I've seen in business is like the gatekeeping that exists is just yeah. like so strong. Like they don't want to, they don't want to tell you about nothing. Like they're mm. like, no, it's mine. Yeah, but I'm just trying out here. I'm not even going <laughs> to take business from you. And like little things like I that. I get that. Whereas, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally like even having guests on my podcast. I mean, first of all, mm. people ask me, why the hell do I even have a podcast? But yeah, mm-hmm. honestly, I feel like we should do another episode because I still have so many other things that we could talk about. But just so that our listeners could get to know your work and what you have in store for Mobilize. Like where can mm-hmm. where can our listeners find you and get up to date? Uh, so Instagram is the best source. Um, it's mobilize, and then there's like a period between every letter, just to make it more complicated. Uh, <laughs> a full stop then, is what we call it. <laughs> oh, is that is a full stop? Yeah. Okay, so we yeah, said mobilize full stop. a full stop between every. Letter. Oh, I like full stop better. Full stop does sound better. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I just find like even even I I speak English. But like, I, I just think this is such a knockoff version of English, like over here, that exists. I'm like, this this ain't even, this ain't even the real shit. Like, we, no we don't even know how to talk with shit. <laughs> yeah, because that's what it is, right? Like, yeah. So that's like, even I've always looked up to like British fashion too in those ways, because I'm just like, yo, it's so much better. Like, all the Europeans, you guys kept all the cool people back there. You sent all the 
the whack ones over here that just wanted to, like, <laughs> to start oil companies and different things. So those are like little things where I'm just like, I always like to learn about the realness that exists. And the, not the you're, that you've, you've yet to come over here. So no, we're still missing out on shit that mm. you're up to. So yeah, see, we need, we need streams between the whole world and see, <laughs> that's why we need things like your podcast to be able to like branch those. Cause it's just like, if we keep waiting for our governments or these big players to do that, it's just going to take too long. Uh, yeah, I thought this was really cool. The other place is like the website is mobilizewaskawiwin.com. Uh, and Waskawiwin is the Cree word for movement. Mm. Uh, so the brand as a whole is mobilize the movement. Um, and that's just a reminder to myself to stay fluid, to keep growing, um, to keep moving. Because for myself, it's it's constant reflection and growth in those ways. Um, like even what I talk about with sustainability, like I'm always open to hear, even if it comes in harsh ways. And I'm always open to grow and learn and to change things um, and to be real about that. And, you know, that's why I like to talk about it and be like, yeah, if you ordered a hoodie two years ago when we first started, <laughs> you might have got a shitty hoodie. My bad. <laughs> but we grow in, we learn. In. Yeah. No, I'm so grateful for this connection. Um, I'm honestly so grateful brought these energies together. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sounds good. Yeah, if you ever want to do another part two, then I'm I'm definitely open. Yeah, awesome. for sure. Loads of parts to come. I feel. Um, definitely like drop me some of the um resources that you recommend because I have pod notes that kind of accompany with mm. this episode. So for so for anyone okay. who wants to learn more about the things that we've touched upon and but yeah 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 I'll, I'll try to pull together a few of the things that i talked about too like the trc or there's certain documents that just exist mm. um, that are good because i think that is that is cool what you're doing because that's the other thing that it comes to is just like you know as indigenous people being able to share this sometimes it becomes exhausting being the educator yeah. Uh, so to be able to give resources so that people could educate themselves is, is so beneficial in those ways as well. Um, just so that we aren't getting burnt out doing that on our yeah, own. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Thank you so much again, Dusty. It's been it's been so great. Yes, thank you. So we may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Join us and the rest of the AA fam on our website at animaanimus.co.uk to connect and continue the conversation within our forum spaces. Please do drop me what your thoughts were on this episode. You can even submit any voice notes, ideas, stories that you'd like me to share on the show. You can also find all the links we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes available on our website. And I would be so, so grateful if you could help me make this show become more discoverable for others by leaving a five-star review on your favorite episode and a social media handle I can contact you with because I would love to connect and thank you all personally. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you so much again for coming through and for listening. I really appreciate you joining this journey with me in driving discussions and creating positive industry change. Once again, I want to send you all mad, mad love. And until next week, this was the Anima Animas podcast with Chelsea now signing out.